0: Good morning to you. Here we are yet again on a Sunday morning and finding ourselves on Facebook. Just a brief announcement before we get into the meditation for today that is encouraging to me and and I know it is to the pastors and the staff of the church. We do plan to begin gatherings, services of some kind, the first Sunday in June, on June the 7th. And as of right now, it looks like we're going to be doing those services outdoors in the parking lot of the YMCA where we typically meet. Uh, there are a number of reasons that this is the route we plan to pursue. There's going to be a lot of correspondence, emails, there'll be videos, there'll be a lot of info headed your way in the coming weeks. So, Lord willing, three weeks from today, we will all be able to gather together again, just in an unusual format, but we trust the Lord in all those things. So pray for us as pastors and as a staff that uh, we would be able to handle everything that we need to, think of everything that we need to, and make preparations as necessary for that gathering on June 7 and then the gatherings thereafter. So uh, I look forward to that. This format is useful um, in as much as it allows us to still think about God's Word together as a church. It provides a point of connection for us. And at the same time, I know it's awkward. It's awkward for me. Uh, trying to deliver God's truth this way to you is just, it's strange. I look forward to being able to see you and uh, preach God's Word to you that way. Um, so I'm I'm excited. I know that you are too. Uh, this is the second in a series of meditations called Encounters with Jesus. Uh, we had the first one last week where... Um, we considered uh, together the parable of the prodigal son. And today we're going to be thinking about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from luke chapter 18 so if you want to go ahead and open your bibles or turn them on to luke chapter 18 and verse 9 that would be great it'd be a good time to do that we'll read the passage here together in just a moment Uh, just a brief word again on this um, series of meditations they're called meditations and not sermons on purpose because they're not expositional sermons per se they're all going to be accounts from the gospels Um, not the gospel of mark just because we Recently went through the Gospel of Mark as a church. Uh, So from the other Gospels, we're going to be looking at a number of passages. Some of these are going to be interchanges with Jesus. Some of these are going to be parables of Christ. Some of them will just be teaching of Jesus. Some well-known, some not so much. And uh, some have been intentionally picked because people aren't quite sure what to do with them. Some have been picked because from the perspective of the pastors of CBC, they're not often taught well. and then some of them um, we're just we have chosen just for our own edification, and God's word is always profitable. These are going to be briefer than sermons. they're 30 minutes long, and I'm going to continue to do this series of meditations even as we begin to gather again in June, Lord willing, just because we're going to need to abbreviate services uh, for several reasons. So we hope that this will serve us well in this reopening season. Uh, So all that by way of just announcements and introduction, so to speak. We're going to now look to the text, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I am going to read the passage for us now, beginning in Luke 18, 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray together briefly before we consider this text. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we pray for your help, that you would guide us by your spirit as we look to your word and that we would rightly see ourselves in light of this text and that we would see our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So if you put your eyes on verse nine, we read these words. He, being Jesus, also told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke tells us exactly what is going on in the mind of Christ and what prompted him to tell this parable. We don't have to guess, we don't have to speculate. We're told that he spoke these words Two people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and were treating others with contempt. During his earthly ministry, Jesus regularly encountered people who thought this way. They thought that in and of themselves they were righteous, or they thought at least that in and of themselves they could achieve righteousness. So this is a normal thing for Jesus. He's constantly confronting this. He is regularly blowing up this kind of thinking. Just a brief observation from verse 9 that we'll think about more later. Jesus' audience is comprised of those who trust in themselves that they were righteous and treat others with contempt. Those two things, friends, always go together. Self-righteousness always breeds contempt for other people. And we'll think more about that in just a minute. Let's look to the parable itself that begins in verse 10. Verse 10, we're going to read about the two men. Two men go to the temple to pray, Jesus says. One is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. So just a brief word of explanation on the Pharisees. They were spiritual descendants from a group known as the Hasidim, meaning the faithful. The Hasidim arose around the 2nd century B.C. as Greek culture and Greek philosophy were beginning to have influence amongst the Jews. So the Pharisees were experts on the law. They were concerned with conformity to the law, but not only to the law of God, also conformity to the hedge of their own traditions that they had put around the law. And the, the thinking in putting a hedge around the law was this, that if keeping the law is good and we don't want people to break the law, then let's put a hedge of other traditions and rules and laws around the law of God itself so that nobody will come close to breaking the law. If we abide by all of these things, then we're safe and we're good. We want to make sure that nobody is going to transgress the law of God. So Phariseeism was a holiness movement. It was concerned very much with holiness and conformity to God's law and to the traditions that they had put around it. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were seen as dishonest and corrupt people, even seen as traitors working for the Roman Empire and oppressing their own people. They were a detestable lot, hence the phrase tax collectors and sinners that's used often in the Gospels. So let's now look at verses 11 and 12 and think about the Pharisee in particular. He prays this way. He's standing by himself. He prays thus to God. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I'm not like other men, God, and I thank you for that. I'm not like other sinners. I'm not like extortioners, the unjust, or adulterers. I'm not like this tax collector. So just note the contempt in this man's prayer, even. It's this kind of posture of, I am not like that, and I'm thankful. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. So the Pharisee does all the right stuff. He does all of the right stuff according to his code. And it's important that we understand, just to be very clear, that many of the things the Pharisees did were not prescribed by God in his law. They were prescribed in the additional laws and commandments of their own tradition. It's clear that the Pharisee takes solace in his practice. He finds confidence in what he's doing. And in all of this, it's also clear that the Pharisee sees himself as a righteous man. He is different than the other sinners that he comes into contact with. He is not like them. It's important, too, that we notice that the Pharisee thanks God that he's not like other men. So if possible, this makes Christ's parable even more pointed. It's not as though the Pharisee understands that he, in and of himself, apart from any of God's work, has made himself righteous. He is acknowledging God's role in it all. He is thanking God that he is not like other men. It's not as though he has dismissed grace altogether, and it's not as though the Pharisees as a whole dismissed grace. I think that we tend to think that of them, and that's just not true. The Pharisee understands his righteousness to be wrought by God. God, you have done this. You have at least helped me in this to the end that I am not like other sinners. I'm not like other men. And he is trusting in that God-wrought righteousness, if we may call it that. And we're going to get Jesus' take on that in verse 14. But before we get there, let's look to verse 13 and consider the tax collector. The tax collector's posture is quite different from that of the Pharisee. He stands far off. He won't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beats his chest. He doesn't understand himself to be worthy of God. He doesn't have confidence in himself as he comes to the temple to pray. His prayer is quite different than that of the Pharisee also. His prayer is simple. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. All he can do, it seems, is acknowledge and confess that he is a sinner and ask for God to be merciful to him. This, brothers and sisters, is repentance. This is a man casting himself upon the mercy of God. So let's look now to verse 14, which we might even call the punchline. This is where Jesus brings it all together and drives it down on a wedge. What is Christ's take on the two men? He gives it to us in a very straightforward manner. It's that the tax collector went down to his house justified, that is, declared righteous in the sight of God, rather than the Pharisee. Now, don't miss and don't forget the scandal here, because Pharisees, in in the eyes and ears of Jesus' audience, the Pharisees were revered. They were upheld as models of righteousness. They were experts on the law, as we've already considered. And tax collectors, as we've already considered, were looked down upon. They were seen as a detestable group of people. So why is it this way? Why is it that the tax collector goes down to his house justified and the Pharisee does not? It's because those, in the, in the words of Christ, those who exalt themselves, those who trust in themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves and don't trust in their own righteousness will be exalted. The one man says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I am righteous. I thank you, God, that I'm doing so well. And the other man says, God, I'm a sinner and I know that I'm not doing well. Please have mercy on me. And Jesus is clear that it is the latter and not the former who is justified in God's sight. Now, in the context of Luke's gospel, it's not a coincidence where Luke goes next. The next three verses after this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector contain Jesus having children brought to him and saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's in Luke 18, verses 16 and 17. Children were weak and helpless. All they could do is receive what was given to them. And Jesus is saying this is how the kingdom of God works. People who enter the kingdom of God are like children. They're weak, they're helpless, and all they can do is receive what has been done for them and what has been given to them. And after that, even beginning in verse eighteen of Luke eighteen, it's the the parable, the account, I should say, of the rich ruler, the rich young man, where Jesus will again point out that no one can be saved by keeping the law, and that salvation is impossible for men. So, understanding all of that in the context of Luke, I think it makes much sense and, and sheds some light on this this parable here of the Pharisee and. The tax collector. So let's consider now, friends, some implications of the truths contained in these verses. There are four implications that I want to think about briefly together today. Implication number one is that our righteousness is never found in us. I'll say that again. Our righteousness is never found in us. It is always an alien righteousness, as has been said throughout church history, meaning that it is not our own, it is not of us. It's our righteousness, that is, is none other than the righteousness of Christ counted to us by faith. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, which our church uses all the time in our services, has a wonderful paragraph that describes this reality beautifully. It's chapter 11 in paragraph 1 of the 1689 London Baptist Confession reads this way. Those God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. He does this not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting them as righteous. He does this for Christ's sake alone, and not for anything produced in them or done by them. He does not impute, that is, credit or count, faith itself, the act of believing, or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. Instead, he imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. This faith is not self-generated, it is the gift of God. That's a wonderful statement, the one that says that Jesus is our whole and only righteousness. Praise the Lord that that is true. All of the righteousness that we will ever need to stand before the Lord, now or in the future, has been counted to us through the work of Jesus Christ in our place, and it's counted to us by faith. Praise the Lord for that good news. Now, the Holy Spirit works in us as Christians. That is not debatable. It's very clear in Scripture that as we have been born again by the Holy Spirit, He takes up residence in us and begins His transforming work in us as we are trusting Christ for our righteousness and one of the things that he does if we consider romans chapter 5 verses 1 to 5 the holy spirit works in us to produce peace in our hearts before god it's important though that we understand that he doesn't do that he doesn't produce peace in our hearts before god by producing things in us from which we would draw our peace He does it, he produces peace in our hearts before the Lord by showing us more of the sufficiency of Christ for us, by showing us more of the righteousness of Christ for us, by showing us more of the satisfaction of Christ for our sins, more of the love of Christ for us. It's like Paul prays even in Ephesians chapter 3, where he prays for Christians that we would be strengthened in our inner being so that we might be able to comprehend with all the saints the height and depth and length and breadth Of the love of Christ for us the Holy Spirit produces peace in our hearts before God by confirming and strengthening our faith in Christ now our lives as we are trusting Jesus are being transformed by the Holy Spirit we're being sanctified we are being conformed into the image of Christ and it's very good for us to look to the change in our lives and be encouraged For you to look at your life, or for me to look at my life and think and observe, or for others to tell you, brother, sister, you were like this a year ago or 10 years ago, and it seems that the Lord has done great work in your life. Praise God. That's a good thing to do. We can look to the transformation and change in our lives and be encouraged or have our assurance bolstered, strengthened in some way. But we never look to our own transformation as our righteousness. That's a critical distinction. We never look to our own transformation as the ground of our standing before God or as the ground of our peace before Him. We do not, this is very critical, we do not trust in our own God-wrought righteousness. I don't care if it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't trust in it. Trust Christ alone. Our confidence is always and only Jesus Implication number two, this, everything that I've just been saying, this understanding that our righteousness is always and only Jesus, removes all possibility of boasting and gives all glory to God through Christ. So what do, if we understand this, that that Jesus is our whole and only righteousness, what do we have to boast in? The answer, biblically, is only Jesus. And also, God's grace to us in Christ. If we think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, a text that we have considered recently in one of these meditations, we are told in 1 Corinthians 1:30 that because of God we are in Christ, and that God has become, or excuse me, Christ has become to us wisdom from God, Christ has become to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, Christ is everything. Christ is all for us. And what's the result? 1 Corinthians 1.31, so that, Paul says, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. The sufficiency of Christ leads to the praise of God, and it leads to boasting in Christ alone. 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 to 17, another text that we've considered recently. Paul says in those verses that he is the foremost of sinners and that Jesus came to save sinners, even the foremost like him. And he says that Jesus has been merciful and gracious to him, So that Jesus might display his perfect patience to all of the saints who would ever believe in him for salvation. Again, what's the result of that? That Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom Paul understands himself to be the foremost, and Jesus displays his mercy and grace and his perfect patience through Paul? And the saints can look at that and know that Jesus will be patient and merciful and gracious with them too? What's the result of that? 1 Timothy 1.17, it's praise. To the king of ages, immortal, and invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. We understand from those verses that we were once dead spiritually. We were just like the rest of mankind. And that God has made us alive in our union with Christ by faith. Paul is very clear in verses eight and nine of Ephesians two, that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So our understanding that Jesus is our whole and only righteousness eliminates any possibility of our boasting, and it gives all glory to God through Christ. It's just like we sing in, In one of the songs that we do at CBC pretty regularly, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, we sing these words, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Implication number three. This understanding that our righteousness is always and only Jesus kills self-righteousness, which is a good thing. I trust that's clear. I I trust it's clear how the understanding that Jesus is our whole and only righteousness would kill self-righteousness because we are not concerned with our own righteousness per se. We're not parading it around because we understand that our righteousness is Christ's, counted to us by faith. And I trust it's also clear that having self-righteousness destroyed is a good thing. Because self-righteousness, friends, is like cancer amongst God's people. If you want to make sure that love amongst the brothers and sisters doesn't happen, self-righteousness is the best way to do it. If you want to kill mercy and compassion in a church, self-righteousness is the best way to do it. If you want to make a church unsafe, self-righteousness is the best way to do it. And this is because, as we already considered briefly from verse 9, that self-righteousness always breeds contempt for other people. It breeds condescension. It fosters a, like, you should be better by now kind of posture in the church. It it produces and fosters this kind of posture where we look at other people and we're like, what's wrong with you? Why are you struggling like that? And the implication in that kind of thinking and talking is that if you were as disciplined or as sincere or as fill in the blank as me, then you wouldn't be struggling like that. Self-righteousness, friends, results in churches being the last place in the world that people would ever be honest about their sin. It results in churches being the last place in the world where people would ever be honest about their wrestlings or about their weakness. Self-righteousness, in that sense, hinders the real confession of sin. In a self-righteous culture, we're afraid, we're terrified of saying what's really going on in our minds and hearts. And this is where you sort of get the cop-out answers whenever we're asked to confess sin or whenever we're asked, hey, how are you doing? Um, or, or what are you struggling with? And we will throw out the kind of common stuff. Well, I'm struggling with pride. Or we might even you know, be a little more risky and in a general way say, well, I'm struggling with lust or whatever it may be. But we don't really confess our sin in its specificity and in its, its wickedness, in its darkness, in its reality. And... We want in the church to be able to really confess our sin to one another, and a culture that understands that Christ is our whole and only righteousness and understands that we are saved completely by grace through faith in Christ, that understands that we are at the same time saint and sinner, does make it possible for the real confession of sin to occur. Self-righteousness, on the other hand, hinders real growth in the faith. Self-righteousness hinders real sanctification because we're not able to be honest with one another. It's very interesting that that movements that concern themselves very much with holiness and sanctification often end up hindering it because people aren't honest, they don't feel safe to be real about the struggles and the wrestlings and the weakness that they know characterize them. We pray that the gospel at CBC will allow people to be very honest, and that the gospel and the work of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, as we understand that corporately together, allows us to live honestly before one another and will produce tremendous amounts of confession of sin and real growth and sanctification in the faith. Implication number four, this will be brief. This understanding that our righteousness is always and only Jesus helps to take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on Christ and our neighbor. So, If we understand that Jesus is our whole and only righteousness, we are no longer doing this kind of navel-gazing thing. We're no longer trying to measure our sanctification like we would a child's height against the wall. We're no longer playing the game of comparative righteousness. We trust Christ and we are set free to love God and love our neighbor according to God's word. It's remarkable that when we take our eyes off of ourselves and our own progress and we put our eyes firmly on Christ and his work in our place and we put our eyes firmly upon our neighbor and loving them, starting with our brothers and sisters in the church, the Holy Spirit of God does tremendous work in us and real change and real transformation happen. It's like God set this thing up that way. So often the way that God works in us is very counterintuitive to us. We think that if we focus on what we should be doing, then we will improve. But in reality, if we focus primarily on what Christ has done for us and then talk about underneath that banner, here is how we love one another and live together in the church, and we're concerned more with loving neighbor and trusting Christ, and we're relying upon the Holy Spirit as we think about what God has told us in terms of how we're to live, that's when things go really well. So praise the Lord for the gospel that Jesus Christ has satisfied for our sins. He has atoned for them. He has satisfied the wrath of God for us. And that that perfect satisfaction is counted to wretched sinners by faith in Christ. Praise God that all of the righteousness and all of the holiness of Jesus is actually counted to us. It's as though we did all the good works that Christ did. By faith, we get His perfect record. It's astonishing grace and mercy. So that we are now declared righteous before God. We have peace before Him in our hearts now and in the future because Christ has given us all of the righteousness that we will ever need. So we too can be like the tax collector and acknowledge our sin before the Lord and ask Him to be merciful to us and we know that He has been and will be that he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we know that in Christ, he will bring us home to be with him forever. It's the good news. It's what we believe, and we're grateful to God in Christ for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. The fact that you have saved wretched sinners such as us, that you have declared us righteous in your sight, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what Christ has done for us. We pray that you'd continue to work in us by your spirit, continue to do your sanctifying work in us, we pray. Help us to love you, help us to love one another well. And we pray that as we take our eyes off of ourselves and put our gaze firmly on Christ and on our neighbor, um, that you would continue to grow us all um, in not only godliness and Christ likeness, but grow us in affection for you and for others. We pray for you to continue to do this great work in us and we know that you're faithful to do it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, it's been good to be with you, uh, even in this format. Only two more weeks of this. I'm glad for that. Look forward to meeting with you in person, even if it will be outdoors on uh, June the 7th. You can pray again for all of the logistics surrounding that and the meetings and the work that will be going into all of that preparation. Um, We're grateful for your prayers. I hope that you have a good rest of your Lord's day. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your friends. If you're seeing people,